It is Friday. It's already February 11th. Thanks for joining us here on Real Talk. We've got a great show in store coming up. Sarah Hoyles has been keeping an eye on news as it develops. We're going to be following what uh, our elected representatives are saying in the House of Commons. Somewhat of a, a confused conservative party, if you ask me, under interim leader Candace Bergen. We're going to bring you an exchange between her, the interim conservative leader, and the Prime Minister Justin Trudeau yesterday. Curious to know where you're at with that. We'll be keeping an eye on our hashtag RealTalkRJ coming up in about 10 minutes. We're going to talk to Dr. Jim Bookbinder out of the University of Waterloo. He's an expert in supply chains. He's going to give us a sense of how these occupations, these border blockades are impacting Canadians. What's the true cost of this? What's the impact on inflation? I want to make sure that we're having informed conversations and deep understanding as deep as we can get on how what we're seeing all around us is actually impacting us, not just in the short term, but in the longer term as well. We also will continue uh, our coverage of our celebration of Black History Month with what I think is going to be a really powerful roundtable, a real talk roundtable. It's our Friday tradition here on the show. It's coming up in about a half an hour from now. We're going to talk to descendants of black communities in early Canada. We're going to talk to Stephen Cook and Shannon Prince and Junetta Jamerson, and I'm really looking forward to this. You won't want to miss it. Uh, if you're watching this live on YouTube, if you're streaming the live audio on the Mixler audio app, make sure you text your friends. Let them know that's coming up. They can listen to that live in about a half hour's time. Plus, of course, we'll get into our question of the week. We're going to take a look at how you feel about that occupation. Is it is it resonating with you? Do you believe it to be legitimate? What are some of the observations you make in the fill in the blank? section of our question of the week that'll be good coming up today and of course trash talk to wrap up the show today it's been a tough decision for our team our panel of trash talk judges have had to sift through submission after submission and they've they've handed me five or six maybe seven of them that are great uh, including one about linkedin Somebody's all fired up about LinkedIn. I'm not sure I saw that one coming, but we'll get into Scott's argument. That's coming about a, about an hour from now. Now, of course, you know that this show is presented by the team at Bitcoin. Well, they're, they're based out of Edmonton. They've got more than 200 Bitcoin ATMs across the country, more of them internationally. That's always where the most interesting stuff's happening. You take a look at Bitcoin in countries like El Salvador right now and what it's doing to financial structures down there. Fascinating stuff. They've also got a set it and forget it Bitcoin savings plan, a monthly or biweekly direct contributions to your online Bitcoin wallet. They can set it up for you. Just look for Bitcoin well under the sponsors tab on our website, ryanjesperson.com. Real talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. As mentioned, uh, coming up in about 10 minutes, Dr. Jim Bookbinder, an expert in supply chain management. But we keep an eye on the news of the day as it happens. This exchange yesterday in the House of Commons, I want to put this in front of my team members. I'm going to get uh, Sarah and Sam's take on what they heard here yesterday. Uh, If you haven't yet seen this exchange, the first voice you're going to hear is the interim leader of the Conservative Party of Canada. She's she's stepped in, nominated by her peers after Aaron O'Toole was essentially voted out. We don't know who the next conservative leader is going to be. A lot of people are wagering it's going to be Pierre Polyev, but, but of course, he's the only one that's declared, and they haven't even set the ground rules yet for the leadership race. So right now, it's Candace Bergen, the MP out of Manitoba, and she wanted to take the PM to task yesterday for how his government has managed this Ottawa occupation. Here's how it went. It's been almost two weeks 
facts since the beginning of this impasse. We all want the protests to end and these Canadians to feel like they've been heard and respected. But now, critical infrastructure is being restricted. Why? Because of this Prime Minister's failure. I've asked the Prime Minister to meet with me and the other opposition leaders in good faith to try to find a way forward from this impasse. He didn't answer yesterday. He hasn't answered to date. I'm going to ask him again. Will he meet with us? Right, Honourable Prime Minister. Mr. Speaker, the Conservative Party of Canada has spent the last two weeks endorsing and enabling these blockades across the country. The leader of the Conservative Party and her team have been their biggest champions, even promoting their fundraising. The consequences of these actions are having dire impacts. They're impacting trade, they're hurting jobs, they're threatening our economy, and they're obstructing our communities. I am focused on ending it. I hope the Leader of the Opposition will maintain her current position and continue to call for an end to these blockades. Okay, so this is yesterday in the House of Commons. Uh, meantime, as mentioned, the only real contender very early in the process for Conservative leadership, uh, the MP out of the Ottawa area, originally out of Calgary, Alberta, of course, Pierre Poliev, Conservative leadership candidate, goes on the record yesterday saying that the Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, mandated truckers be vaccinated, quote, as a vindictive wedge strategy to divide Canadians. Pierre Poliev goes on to say, I'm proud of the truckers. So you might not be alone if you're sitting here trying to figure out exactly which lane the Conservatives are driving their truck in. I mean, which argument is it? Is it the PM's fault? Is it time that he do something and demand an end to this? Or, I mean, are we proud of these truckers? Are we proud of these demonstrators? Do we stand on their side? You saw a video I mentioned yesterday. Andrew Scheer, the former leader of the Conservatives, another one of them, wanking out of his way before heading into work in Ottawa yesterday. He was on video and out of his way to shake hands with and greet these convoy occupiers. So what message are you sending to them? What message are you sending to the rest of Canada? I was like to pick the brain of those that are closest to me on this team. Sam Brooks, Sarah Hoyles. Of course, Hoyles, you've been following this on behalf of the show. I, I'm not sure. I mean, you know, there's the hooting and hollering that comes in the House of Commons, the heckling, and it's all part of it. We kind of love the heckling a little bit. But I'm not sure exactly what Justin Trudeau did to earn the heckling there where he says you guys have been supporting them the whole time. And all of a sudden, boo, boo. It's like, no, no, no. It's pretty obvious in plain sight. Everybody can see it. I don't know where the heckling is coming from. Yeah, it's just facts, folks. I guess they're cheering for facts. I guess. Uh, science. Yeah. Hashtag science. I don't really get the argument. I mean, I, I, I can understand that, you, you know, as uh, the official opposition, you got to your job is to kind of be critical of the government and put your own policy out there. Say, if we were the government, this is what we would do. And I think that the Conservative Party, and this is going to sound and look like a little bit of a pile on, but quite frankly, right now, the people that are loudestly or, or that are loudest in criticizing the Conservative Party are my conservative friends who are appalled with what they're seeing right now. This party is embarrassing itself. And the tone that they're taking in the House of Commons right now, that this is all the prime minister's fault and it's time he busted up while they're out there supporting it and patting him on the back. I mean, it's it's, it's laughable to me. Yeah, I mean, I don't think that they need to just because the liberals are doing one thing that they need to obviously do the opposite. Like, I don't think that 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 needs to happen. Um, there is an ability to be wanting our supply chains to be open 
and <laughs> to actually have our borders open for trade and to support our economy. I think that that is a conservative value just as much as it is a liberal value. Yeah. Crazy Fast Daddy says, can we please stop calling this a protest or a trucker rally? Fair enough. I mean, it is a protest for sure. It's an occupation. I understand why people don't. I understand why truckers don't want to call it a trucker rally. All the truckers are out there working right now. They're hauling goods across the country. Sam, when you're watching this, we ask you, you know, you hit play on that clip and you're sitting there watching it. Are you able to take it seriously at all? Please say yes so we can have a dissenting opinion. Please tell me that it resonated with you. I I actually zoomed in a lot more on what Pierre Palavra had to say rather than Candace Bergen. Like, I, I would say that, you know... Here and now, in this flashpoint, in this moment of time, what we've seen from the CPC over the last couple election cycles, and certainly what's ramping up right now, is like the only brand that they really have that they're sticking to is Trudeau is bad and he must go. And the loudest, most angriest, most fist pounding voice among them has been consistently for the last couple of years, Pierre Polyavra. So I think that, you know. Candace Bergen can can try and rally the troops and she can say what she wants, but she's not the face of the party and the face of the party has shifted. Yeah, no kidding. Kathy on our live chat on YouTube says, I don't blame the prime minister for not wanting to meet with these people. You know, they're carrying around signs talking about hanging him. I wouldn't want to meet with people saying they want to kill me either. Uh, Jillian, meantime, on the language front says it's a siege. Uh, it's like a terrorist siege. Uh, Shalane says I'd call them I'd call the hecklers children, uh, but the grade fives and sixes that I see are much more mature than them. Fair enough. How about Craig, who says people lining up their kids on the border crossing, says this is domestic terrorism. You see this all the kids hand in hand. They're doing what their parents are telling them to do. Parents are using their kids to to block the border. I always I always try to flip things around. We actually have an amazing email. I'm sort of feeling I don't want to lop off trash talk at the knees. There's a there's a submission from West Juice. And the biggest compliment, West Juice, that I can pay you an hour before Trash Talk comes is that I have you in the closer spot right now. Uh, this is the one that's going to send us into the weekend. Uh, it's like the good night now. This sort of stone cold Steve Austin crack the two cans, smash them together and beer suds all over the face while we sign off. That's sort of that's sort of West Juice's email here. So I won't read it now, uh, but it touches on that whole idea. If you if you walk in different shoes or you look at this through a different lens, I wonder how the same people would feel. Let's say an indigenous family brings all of their children out and they stand hand in hand to to block the development of a pipeline. Right. What happens if a a bunch of people bring all their children out and they stand hand in hand, ring around the rosy style around a big old growth cedar tree and they refuse to allow the logging to happen? Does everybody still support it? Everybody still support kids getting involved? Everybody still support using their youngins that don't yet have the decision making power that don't yet have the autonomy don't yet have the legal right to either participate or decline their participation in these types of things. Joe says it's bouncy castle fascism. <laughs> okay. And we've got people endorsing uh, like Jake says, I do endorse real talk ending in the same manner on Fridays. We could get uh, when sea change releases the Jespo Pisco sour again, this coming June, we'll do two cans of Pisco sour every Friday. I'll go all stone cold up in here to wrap up the week. We'll see how that goes. People are debating whether or not that's child abuse. I I don't want to get too far off track here. This is one of the storylines that we're following. But Hoyles, I think something that's worth attention as well is that with Pierre Polyev putting himself out there, uh, you know, I was listening to Bruce Anderson talking to Peter Mansbridge a couple of days ago on the bridge on his podcast. He says the rapidity, the immediacy 
of Pierre Polyev's announcement he's going to seek the leadership led Bruce to believe that this was a plan that had long been laid. There was no consultation with the family. There was no consultation with a team or potential donors or investigating like all the others are saying. We're going to take a look. I'm going to decide if it's right for me and my family at this time, and we'll be making an announcement when the time is appropriate. Pierre Polyev was like, I'm in. And so people are going to be talking about him. It's a smart move to declare early. You might scare off some others, right? It can also be tough because it's tough to make news later. When you make the big splash early, you got to remain forefront in people's minds. But Pierre Polyev saying, I'm going to lead this party forward. He says, I don't want to. Be, he didn't say he wanted to be the leader of the party. He said he wants to be prime minister. And then to go play footsies, to hop into bed with the convoy. It's a risky move politically, I think, especially when you don't know how this occupation is going to play out. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think it's also like being able to maintain momentum. Yeah, re- announcing this early is is tricky business. But I mean, if he's going to continue to make headlines by aligning himself with the truckers, like maybe that's maybe that's his approach. Maybe that's what his whole campaign's going to be about. But you got to push this party further right. I guess. But if if you're pushing the party further right, I mean, what's the wager? If you're the strategist on the team, you're sitting there going, did we surrender more votes in the last election? The conservatives did all right numbers wise, just not the amount of seats they needed. Vote wise, they did all right. Uh, it wasn't a total flop. But do you believe that you surrendered more votes to Maxime Bernier and the PPC on the far right? Or do you think that you maybe left more on the table with regards to former progressive conservatives or centrists or people that whose votes are up for grabs that might vote liberal or they might vote conservative or they might not vote um, and I'd be surprised if they think that there's more on the far right they can get without surrendering. It feels like chopping off your nose to spite your face a little bit. feels like a dangerous move. Before we move on, before we talk supply chain with Dr. Bookbinder, what's going on with the money behind this? I think everybody knows that there's been a, a, an interruption with the GoFundMe, about $10 bucks raised, right, Sarah? And then GoFundMe, under pressure, said that they violated the terms. They're refunding all the money. But then that numbers jumped right back up again on a different platform. Yeah, they decided to take it onto a different platform. The platform is known as Give, Send, Go, and it's a Christian fundraising site. And so, yeah, the truckers have been able to raise money there. But, but now there has been an effort to actually petition a court to freeze access to this money. So the money has been raised yet again and now frozen yet again. What's the argument? Basically, people are just saying it's 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 funding illegal activity. Uh, that's kind of the argument, I guess. Yeah, same, same as what was going on with the GoFundMe. It's like just carry over, copy, repeat. Okay, all right. Uh, we'll have an update. Uh, there's an Olympic update as well that Sarah's keeping an eye on, and, and you were keeping an eye on the hockey score. Do we have to say spoiler alerts? Do people Are, are people PVRing this game? Maybe we shouldn't I, say I anything. Think, I think it's public news by now. Can we say, okay, yeah. well, we'll just say spoiler alert on the women's hockey score that we were keeping an eye on, Sam, Ooh, a bit of a blowout. Canada stomped Finland 11-0. Was it Finland or Sweden? Sweden, pardon Sweden. me, it was Sweden. 11-0. Yeah. Okay, so Good. there you go. Nice shutty for the Canadian gals there uh, at Beijing. Uh, curious know where you're at on the olympics and whether or not that's something that's taken up a lot of your time i like when it's in different time zones um there's something special to me about being able to sit down at midnight you can't sleep one in the morning one thirty, two o'clock watching live half pipe or live speed skating that's pretty cool i think one of my all-time favorite memories is the uh the men's gold medal hockey game for sochi yes i uh i went to my buddy's house with a six-pack of beer and a waffle iron because it was three in the <laughs> yeah. morning and we had beer and waffles and watched hockey that sounds amazing now that's all i can think about yeah, is right? beer and waffles and i'm gonna frantically scramble to adjust our ad read to go straight to freezing.com right now <laughs> 
and let you know, you know, they do have beer in some Friesen Brothers locations. I love these ones, especially South Edmonton. That's the one where I've seen a few pints pulled. Uh, they've got some great craft beer on tap there. And their Fort Saskatchewan location, too. Go get a fresh pizza out of the oven or maybe a smash burger and a nice cold one. Or maybe you need the fresh ingredients for your waffles on the weekend. I recommend the Ivan's Sausages, a perfect pairing. And of course, don't even get me started on the cinnamon buns. Friesen Brothers has a plan for those lovers out there without a plan for Valentine's Day. Coming up and you can check out the details on Friesen.com. You can share the love of really great food with a steak and prawn dinner. February 12th, that's tomorrow, available at select Friesen Brothers locations. Check the website for details. If you're heading out of town, lucky you, on your way to a hotter locale, perhaps, why not park your car at Edmonton's International Airport? Jet Set Parking is where you can park for just $7 a day with the promo code REALTALK at jetsetparking.com. That's right. You go to the website right now. You can book your parking, your airport parking from now till the end of 2022, the end of the year. You can book for nine and a half more months with the promo code REALTALK for just $7 a day. Save by booking online at jetsetparking.com. And a shout out to our Real Talk Wine of the Month. You can check out Kendall Jackson online at kj.com. That's where you can learn more about their Grand Reserve collection. I've tried that Chardonnay. It's absolutely fabulous. And understand more about what makes this one of the most recognizable wine brands in the world still a family affair. Family owned, family run with huge commitment to sustainability. It's why they've been winning awards along those lines for years now. Kendall Jackson, you'll find it anywhere you buy fine wine. And if you don't see it on the shelf, ask for Kendall Jackson. Well, there's no doubt that there are interruptions to supply chains across the country and for that matter, around the world. Just talk to anybody virtually in any industry and they'll let you know it's a reality. It's a fact that they're living with exacerbated, it appears, by these border blockades and, of course, this Ottawa occupation. Supply chains have been used as justification for those same demonstrations. We wanted to go to somebody who knows what they're talking about on this front, and you won't find anybody who knows more about it than our guest, Dr. Jim Bookbinder, a professor of management sciences in the Faculty of Engineering out of the University of Waterloo. The good doctor, also director of the university's research group in logistics and supply chain management. Dr. Bookbinder, welcome to the show. Thank you for making time for us. A good morning to you morning. Thank you for having me. Do you buy the argument that this uh, trucker protest is in direct response to supply chain issues? Is that a valid point that these demonstrators are making? Well, they are having a real impact on the supply chain by by uh, inhibiting the, the cross-border flow in, in both directions of the components and, and sub-assemblies that are needed for uh, automobile assembly. <clears throat> But uh, no, I, I don't buy it uh, that much because if 90% of the truckers were uh, vaccinated, as they uh, are said to be by their industry association, uh, then then the, the flow of components uh, back and forth from Canada to the U.S. and vice versa, that, that's there. And, and, 
And and so no, I don't I don't see that's a valid reason at all. Now they're as tired as everybody else about the the mandates to wear your mask and and to social distance. And uh, I I've experienced that too, of course. Uh, trying to get to know my uh, class now, my students now that we're back to in person learning, and I have their photos from their student IDs, and they're useless. Everybody's wearing a mask. I I can't recognize anybody from the eyes up. Yeah, I know everybody's ready for this to end. There's different opinions on what mile markers we should be looking at to determine when these policies change. Generally speaking, when we talk about supply chain and and chokes there or stalls and all these delays, do we need to go industry by industry? Do we need to take a look at different regions of the world where these imports are coming from or across the board? Is it messy right now? Well, I think you make a good point that, that in the news we've heard Canada's supply chain is in trouble, but really, that's okay as, as a colloquialism, but, but Canada doesn't have a single supply chain. Companies have supply chains, and, and many companies are part of multiple supply chains. They, they, um, they produce a wide variety of products, and they're working with different uh, suppliers and, and different transportation carriers for all of those. But, but it is true that, that we have difficulty because of the um, lack of uh, transportation capacity in the various modes. And we can talk about that if you like. And then the, the other capacity that we're lacking is, is uh, for warehousing or storage at distribution centers, because if we were gonna try to increase the amount of product that's uh, available in the near term to retailers, it's, it's got to be stored somewhere and there's a shortage of capacity there as well. Is it possible to take a look at one factor at play and say this is the cause of all of this? Or I mean, is, is it a ton? I mean, I talked to a, a, a brewer the other day and he was telling me he's worried about the future of his cranberry sour because he can't get his hands on enough cranberries. He says it has nothing to do with COVID-19, so it has nothing to do with vaccine mandates. It has to do with those Uh, horrific conditions in British Columbia that wiped out berry crops and absolutely decimated the landscape. I mean, that's one example of many. People are still talking about the Suez Canal blockade. That was, what, a year ago? I mean, is that still having an impact? Well, its impact is probably uh, tapered off by now, but the the cranberry example is an excellent uh, point that that every um, product or type of product has, has its own issues and, and um, if, if uh, there were a better supply of cranberries, then perhaps we'd be worried about the, um, the availability of the bottles in which to put the, the product. So, so, um, so there are a lot of difficulties. I think it all comes back to when, when the pandemic first started, uh, who knew what was gonna happen really? So we all panicked and, and uh, industries uh, as, as they would likely do, uh, cut back on their production because they they imagined there was going to be a great recession coming, if not a depression. The government then stepped in and said, "Okay, we're going to have uh, uh, all these programs that are going to help people uh, uh, keep up with their um, uh, with their salaries. We'll help companies uh, maintain their their um, uh, their their production to the extent they can because they'll be able to maintain many of their employees. So the company stepped in, and and as a result, now the the cutbacks in hindsight didn't need to have happened or didn't need to be that drastic. And I believe that's what what was the initial cause of the uh, problem. 
We were just taking a look at a report uh, from CTV News that points out how supply chain disruptions and a shift in consumer behavior are keeping inflation elevated in Canada. Can, can you draw that line for us? Can you help us understand how the disruptions of the supply chain and, and consumer behavior impacts that inflation in Canada? The inflation is, um, uh, you know, roughly related to the fact that that demand at present is is much greater than the supply. We haven't, as a society, we haven't been spending money on leisure or travel, and so we got plenty of money to try to buy goods. But the goods are less available than we would like because of the the cutbacks I mentioned before. So so if um, uh, supply is less than demand. Then, then it's natural for companies as a way to try to equilibrate everything uh, to raise their prices. It, it's a way to to get some hesitant uh, purchasers a little bit uh, uh, less eager to buy, and supply and demand become slightly more equal. And and uh, you know, I'm sure a, a macroeconomist could give a better uh, theoretical explanation than that. But that's that's roughly what's happening. We got an interesting comment from Glenna, uh, who's watching us live. Glenna says truckers have demonstrated how dissidents inside a democratic country can easily bring commerce to a halt with a big truck and an attitude. New conditions for access may follow this action. When it comes to action, uh, what would you suggest uh, different levels of government could do, if anything, uh, to improve the flow of the supply chain and, and ultimately to benefit Canadian consumers. That's what people expect from their government, right? It would be nice if the government could, uh, could do that. Now, uh, uh, in, in some cases uh, they can, and they have in, um, in the U S the, the important uh, ports of, of Los Angeles and Long Beach, they've added an extra shift. So they're working 24 seven to try to unload the, um, uh, the ocean-going vessels that arrive at the port, uh, unload the containers, and, and of course, that's the first step. Now, we need the rail capacity to be able to then uh, get those um, uh, containers away from the port and, and move them uh, uh, to the ultimate uh, buyers of the goods. Um, so that's one thing the government uh, could do. Um, we, we can't overnight, we can't create uh, more, more highway capacity and we certainly can't create more more drivers and more vehicles, more trucks for them to to drive. So so I'm not sure government can can help out that way. But but we could talk about uh, concrete actions that some uh, c- companies have taken that 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 enable them at least to be in a better position. Yeah. What would be a good example? Well, um, Canadian Tire is chartering its own uh, vessels from from Asia, so they have control now over over that uh, capacity of the ship. So that's one thing they, they have done. I think Amazon is also chartering its own vessel and you would expect Amazon to be uh, you know, doing something like that because they, they've got the financial muscle uh, to, um, uh, to do so. Um, Canadian Tire has also uh, bought an interest in, in a private rail yard that's a few hundred kilometers uh, uh, north of uh, Vancouver. So, so they're able to uh, marshal some of the, the rail capacity needed to move the containers eastward by, by having a, a big say in the operations of that facility. I mean, there is a shortage of, of, of rail capacity and industrial land 
operations in general uh, near a port. And Canadian Tire took a good step there by by investing in that rail yard. Jim, is this uh, and obviously you're talking about huge brands. You talked about the financial muscle, which is obviously a huge factor. A lot of small business owners will be going, I can't exactly yes, charter my yes, own vessel right now. Right. But is, is this part of a new reality? Is, is this a blip on the radar in 2025 or 2026? Will we look back and talk about the great supply chain interruption of 2021, 22? Or is this the future? Well, I hope it's not uh, the future. Now, I was I was uh, wondering about that same thing. What can a medium size or a small company uh, do? So, so if there's a shortage of of transportation capacity, um, you know, not not every organization um, does their trucking via common carrier. Uh, private, um, uh, sorry, companies that are public that are available for hire, and you you uh, make arrangements on a contract or a load by load basis to move your goods. But many companies operate their own uh, private fleet also. They have some of their own trucks. And I would think that, that if, if a company could afford it to, to take a major interest in, in a, um, a trucking company, an outside trucking company, bring some of that transportation capacity in-house and then have a little bit more say in, in the timing of, of the movement of goods from one node of a supply chain to the next. Fascinating stuff. Uh, Dr. Jim Bookbinder, a supply chain management expert out of the University of Waterloo. Thanks for making time for us today, helping us understand this. We appreciate it. Okay. Uh, uh, I enjoyed uh, learning about your program and being part of it. Thank Thanks. You. Thank you. I appreciate that. That's great. Hey, one expert at a time. Just keep adding them to the roster. One expert at a time. As we are talking, Ontario's premier is addressing uh, his province and addressing the country. Doug Ford saying that there's going to be consequences for these actions. He's talking about the truck convoy, the border blockade, says they're going to be severe. Uh, we pointed out yesterday on the show, This it's estimated that the cost of blocking that bridge, the Ambassador Bridge between Detroit and Windsor, Windsor, Ontario to Detroit, almost just under half a billion dollars a day in commerce interrupted. There's major automakers that are interrupting their manufacturing schedules right now, saying they don't have access to what they need and they're not going to be working. Uh, Workers, hundreds, if not thousands of them are being held hostage right now by these demonstrations. Doug Ford saying we've got to heal the divide. We've got to come together. He just said, God bless the people of Ontario, and he's going to start taking questions. That's Ontario's Premier Doug Ford. Now, you told us how you feel about this convoy and ultimately this occupation in Ottawa. We're going to get to that in just a second. Review the results of this past week's question of the week. That in just a second. But I wanted to remind you that Athabasca University right now, it's open. For you to come take a look, it's not the type of scenario where you got to wait until July or August to learn about admissions for September, and then you got to hit the ground running because fall is when everybody makes time for school, right? Fall is when it kickstarts. Well, not necessarily at Athabasca University. They've got their world-class accredited online programs. That's key, accredited, and the courses that offer you the flexibility to learn at your own pace on a schedule set by you that suits your lifestyle. So if the spring means back to school for you, so be it. If you need a couple months to get things sorted and then you can hit it hard, well, perfect. You can learn more about AU, how it works, the programs and courses on offer, and how to register at AthabascaU.ca. You can link to them under the Sponsors tab on our website as well. That's also where you'll find the teams at Sherwood and St. Albert Dodge. And I want to remind you, yesterday they kicked off their Wild Wrangler Weekend. 
That's going to run all the way through till February 13th. That's Sunday, of course. Your shot at some amazing details and deals on the wildly popular Jeep Wrangler. You'll find all of the details. You can browse the selection online, or if you'd rather shop in person, if you're like me, you want to smell the leather, man. You want to wrap your hands around the steering wheel. You want to feel how it rides. You'll find them. The best selection in the province at St. Albert and Sherwood Dodge. And how about all of those real talkers that signed up for the fixed rate at Park Power. Now, this is not the time where you want people saying, told you so. We know that. A lot of people taking a look at their utility bills right now going, what? Remember that Park Power gives you the option of fixed or variable rates. You can compare rates on electricity, natural gas, and internet 24 hours a day on their website, parkpower.ca. And when you're ready to bring your business to Park Power, they'll break up with your current utilities provider on your behalf so you don't have to have that awkward conversation. You can check them out online at parkpower.ca. In just a few moments, we'll get to our Real Talk Roundtable, part of our continuing celebration of Black History Month. And I'm very much looking forward to a conversation about early black communities in early Canada. We're going to take a look back and understand the lineages, the challenges, the wins, and the lasting legacies. That coming up in a few moments. But first... Every week, our official research and strategy partners at Y Station push out a question of the week. You can find it on our website, ryanjesperson.com, under Connect. Hundreds of you chime in and let us know how you feel about the issues that matter most, the most prominent news stories oftentimes across the country, and that includes this Ottawa occupation. Let's take a look at what you had to say. Well, Chris Henderson and his team at Y Station have pulled some highlights from our question of the week on this so-called freedom convoy. Sam, let's take a look at some of the key observations. Number one, just 4% of those of you that chimed in, more than 700 of you, 4% think that protests are useless. There's no point. Just 4% of you believe. So 96% of you think that protests do have value. I'm one of the 96%. Just over half of you, 53% of Real Talkers surveyed, believe that violence in Ottawa was a real possibility on the initial day of that protest. You had your hearts in your throat a little bit. More than half of you believed that it was possible we would see violence. Here's another interesting stat. Just 2% of Real Talkers surveyed believe that January 6th style violence What we saw a year and a bit ago in the United States is not possible in Canada. In other words, almost every one of you, 98% of you believe that Canada could see a problematic scenario like that. And here's another interesting one. Four out of five of you, 79% of real talkers believe that the convoy is about much more than protesting vaccine requirements for truckers. I'm with Chris on this one. He included a note in the top line report that we get. All of our Patreon supporters get that top line report. He says, I'm actually shocked at how low that number is. He says, I thought that would be in the mid 90s. Pretty interesting, right? One in five of you believes that the convoy still is just about vaccine mandates. I don't know about that. Now, when it comes to whether or not protests are effective, 45% of you said maybe they can be, but this convoy didn't live up to the hype. The demands were poorly presented and elected officials will not take it seriously. 40% of you said it's not a serious protest by serious people. It's obnoxious, but easy to ignore. Those of you that aren't living in downtown Ottawa right now, I guess. 
And 4% of you believe that showing up in force like that sends a real message to our elected officials whether they like it or not. We asked you to fill in the blanks. What do you think the main message of the convoy was? One of you said it's end vaccine mandates and end all public health measures. That's what resonated with you. We also asked you to chime in and share your thoughts on the main themes around the intent. One of you said it's pressure by foreign influences to undermine Canada's democratic institutions. Another one of you said it's lashing out against the unfairness of a changing world. Another said it's a fundraising grift by organizers. Another one of you said to express white supremacist, racist, fascist, and anti-immigration rhetoric. And we ask you anything else, sort of a fill in the blank way to wrap up the question of the week. Some of you breeze on by, you take your 90 seconds, you fill out the survey, we appreciate it. Other ones of you, well, you put in a little more time. Like this audience member that said, half of Canada's truckers are immigrants, including many who are visibly non-white. None of those truckers were present for this protest. It was a narrowly self-selected group. I know someone's going to tweet a photo to me of a non-white trucker involved in the convoy, but I digress. That's someone else's comment, not mine. Another one of you says, I fully support protests. It's part of democracy. What I don't support is violence, racism, and disrespectful people. These types of views exist in the minority of the population, but we cannot wash our hands of it. Another one said, I'm tired of living in the pandemic. Everybody is. And there are some legitimate issues and concerns that need to be addressed, but this is equivalent to a toddler's tantrum. Hopefully now these folks have it out of their system. We can all get back to working hard and looking out for everybody else like so many have been doing all along. And signing off, one of you simply wrote, honk, honk. Thank you for that. Our Patreon supporters have the full top line report in their email inboxes. We sent it out yesterday. And a reminder that our current question of the week is up right now on our website. Go to ryanjesperson.com, click on connect, and then question of the week. It takes about two minutes, and we're asking you how you feel about the province of Alberta scaling back COVID-19 restrictions. Restaurants, theaters, kids, unmasked in schools. How are you feeling about it? I'm curious to see if the responses here will line up with my unofficial, unscientific Twitter poll from the other day, where we saw virtually 30% splits. A third of respondents, unscientifically, said, we're great with it. Let's go. Let her buck. A third of you said, feels a bit soon. And a third of you were, quite frankly, pissed off. So participate in our question of the week, and we'll be reviewing that early next week, courtesy of our research and strategy partners at Y Station. Well, February is Black History Month, and we're proud to feature conversations that allow us to understand more and in more full fashion about the history of black people in Canada. That's communities, contributions and lasting legacies. And what an honor to welcome this edition of the Real Talk Roundtable. Stephen Cook is a fifth generation Canadian descended from the Underground Railroad refugees fleeing slavery in Ohio County, Kentucky. He attended Carleton University School of Journalism and the broadcast radio course at Fanshawe College, beginning his career at Uncle Tom's Cabin Historic Site, ultimately as a summer student in 1987, now curator of the museum since 2000. What a story. Shannon Prince is the curator of the Buxton National Historic Site and Museum. Uh, she's a sixth generation descendant from the Elgin Settlement. 
And my friend, Junetta Jamerson, is a descendant of Amber Valley, a part of the Black Women United YEG, an advocacy collective whose mission is to the protection and advancement of black women and girls. A warm welcome to all three of you, and thank you for making time for us today. I want to start with a general question. Shannon, what does Black History Month mean to you personally? Uh, ah, thank you for having us all here today. I, it's a variety of things. You know, I think one of the things to me is a time to really commemorate and honor uh, and recognize all those amazing uh, Canadian, uh, Black Canadian trailblazers and those incredible um uh, achievements they made throughout their lives. I think it's time that they get some recognition for what they have done. It's a you know it's a time where we need to really honor all of those all of those people, uh, past, present, and future. But it's also a time to really look at how far we have come. But there's still so much more work to be done. Um, that sort of thing. But uh, but also, I don't think it should stop in February. It's one of those things where people celebrate February, Black History Month. But as soon as February 28th rolls around, it's like, OK, we're done. Uh, but it's an ongoing, you know, you need to celebrate it <laughs> uh, tw 12 months of the year. You know, it does not need to stop. Uh, it needs to be continually supported and and honored because there's so many wonderful stories that need to be told and shared with what, how we have not only helped shape these amazing communities, but also the country uh, that needs to be recognized. Well, I'm, I'm looking forward to deepening our understanding of, of these communities in particular um, and then the bigger picture, that widened out view like like you're alluding to, Shannon. Stephen, uh, let me ask you the same question. I mean, what a cool story. You get involved at this Uncle Tom's Cabin historic site in 1987 as a summer student, and, and it's virtually been a huge part of your career uh, since then. You obviously have an appreciation of of history. And uh, clearly, I know that that's something that's very personal to you as well. What does Black History Month mean to you? I would echo, oh, first of all, thanks, Ryan, for having us. Appreciate being here. We love talking about uh, Black history whenever we get an opportunity. So uh, this is a fantastic opportunity for all of us. Um, I'll echo everything Shannon says. Now, you have to understand, Ryan, Shannon and I talk multiple times a day. Uh, her museum's about 45 minutes from mine. So we are in constant contact. Um, so we really think alike. Uh, if I could say that, um, <laughs> but I, I love this opportunity to, to share the story more broadly uh, with uh, visitors that to reach out to us, especially during Black History Month. We know that we've got to rest up in January because as we get closer to the end of the month, people are always realizing, uh oh, Black History Month is, is coming in a couple of days. We better reach out and see uh, what's going on. But I think What's really special for me about Black History Month is we're always learning. And I don't think any of us probably on the call know everything there is to know about Black history. So when this month comes around, we're learning about new books, new resources that have been published or produced that tell another nuance of the story that we didn't know about. So it's an opportunity for us to educate ourselves as well. And I, that's what I really appreciate about it. 
I love the spirit of the comment, and 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 I and I hope and I trust that every one of us, uh, regardless of of our depth of knowledge or understanding about Black history in Canada, will learn something as a result of this conversation. Uh, Junetta, you you've you've heard what your co-panelists have to say about what Black History Month means to them. Um, you have 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 been a dynamic storyteller through song and advocacy and so many other involvements that I've personally witnessed over the years. What does Black History Month mean to you this year? Well, first of all, I have to greet my co-panelists, uh, Stephen, Shannon, greetings from the settlement people. I'm just so happy to connect with you because we have this geographical divide. You know, I don't know, Ryan, of another panelist that's actually brought all these hereditary members together like this. And if we could just add a Scotian brother or sister, I mean, we could have a whole homecoming up in here. <laughs> you know, that would be one for the books. So I'm just so happy to be here with you all this morning, and I hope we can get to know each other better after the show, you know, and and build that relationship. Uh, so my family actually comes from Wildwood. Amber Valley was our was our largest settlement. My family is from the Wildwood settlement. Uh, my husband's people are from the Amber Valley and around the Maidstone area in Saskatchewan. And Black History Month to me. It is something that I didn't just stumble into, I was born into. Uh, my grandmother was one of the first documentarians, that's Mrs. Belma Carter. My father then took up the baton and you know he produced works and many uh, cultural community activities and was very, very active in community building. And so I've really just come into this quite naturally and like my sister said, we live at 24-7. We live at 365 out here. We really do. In this house, I can't speak for everybody, but in this house, I know we sure do. So it's wonderful to be able to share some of this history with people who are uh, less informed. Mm. And I, I get that same surprise. You know, what do you mean Black people been here, right? I get that all the time. I'm just like, yeah, tell me when your people came and i Bet you I got your beat, right? <laughs> yeah, well, let's talk about these these early settlements, these early communities. I mean, Jeanette, I love I love how you put it. You know, these the, this hereditary panel uh, where I mean, uh, my understanding is that the three of you can all trace your lineage directly down for what? Probably 150 years. Uh, Shannon, uh, what do you know about uh, your earliest uh, or your family's earliest journey into Canada or these early communities? They, well, my family, they came from um, Tennessee, believe it or not. Uh, and, and it's interesting because one of the first places they did when they came to um, this area, they settled in the Dawn Settlement prior to moving out here to Buxton, which is really kind of interesting. So some of them settled there and then some of them moved out here to Buxton where we are. So this, this settlement is... Um, one of those stops like Stevens is as well, but the, our area, it's, um, uh, there were planned settlements, if you will. And we were one of the four settlements that were planned. Basically someone had an idea, a vision, what they wanted to see for blacks for better opportunities. So they all had the same idea, secure the land, build the churches, build the schools and they will come. So ours was 9,000 acres um, in comparison to some of the other ones. Uh, and it was also classified as the most successful, if you will, uh, in some terms due to, and I think it was the opportunities 
opportunities that were provided for Blacks when they arrived here. Um, so it was very, very prosperous, um, uh, successful, that sort of thing. And at its height, they were, you know, close to between 1,200 and 2,000 people um, that arrived here. But they had their own um industries they you know they produced if you will some doctors and lawyers and uh congressmen and speaker in the state legislature so people uh had their first start in history if you will here in buxton but eventually returned to the united states to help with that reconstruction shannon just to follow up what what was canada like um for for these people that are bringing their families up, hundreds of them, uh, in many cases, fleeing slavery. And, been, and I'm curious to hear from all three of you on this. But, you know, as Canadians, typically we, we can become guilty. We look down to our American neighbors and we say, look at all the problems that the Americans have with racism. And we'd like to absolve ourselves of any of this. And we know that certainly that's not the case. I mean, we could talk about our nation's history of residential schools, but I don't even think we need to go into that. We can keep it in the context of this. Was Canada, would you deem it to be a welcoming place or were there some rude realities in Canada? I mean, what did these these early settlers face when they crossed that border? It was because because Canada was perceived as that place of freedom and opportunity and warm and welcoming. Uh, but it was not as such. Uh, when you read some of the uh, slave journals or the, the narratives, if you will, in Benjamin Drew's book, uh, Northside View of Slavery, some of them will tell you, you know, that I felt safer sometimes living over on the Detroit side. And then when they arrived here in Canada, it was totally different uh, because they weren't embraced thinking that they were going to have that warm and fuzzy feeling. Uh, but there was slavery here. There was racism here. You know, basically, you know, uh, you're here, but I don't want you in my backyard. Um, that was the whole idea. Let's move them out of here, you know. Uh, uh, and then when, you know, slavery was abolished, I'm proud that we've abolished it. But again, I don't really think I want to be around them. So they faced a lot of obstacles uh, with slavery already being here in Canada. And what's also interesting, when there was slavery here, Blacks were actually escaping and heading back to the United States. You don't normally hear about that side of the story either, uh, because at that one time there was no slavery there. So it was it's interesting how they just and it was a porous border. So when, you know, people because slave catchers would patrol the, you know, Detroit um, River, Detroit Wind or um, Niagara, Buffalo, you know, th those border crossing areas. So they had, a, you know, thinking they were coming here and being, um, you know, they had another long road to hole, uh, to go, I should say. But here, uh, because the founder of our settlement realized because of this opposition, he put a lot of rules in place uh, because of that. And he firmly believed that if blacks were given those same opportunities as whites, they could become self-sufficient and self-sustaining. Um, and that's why, you know, land could only be purchased by blacks for a certain period of time. And to give the blacks a sense of pride in who they were. Um, and they did it on their own. Stephen, did you hear stories like that? I mean, in your, in your introduction, I mentioned you're a fifth generation uh, Canadian descended from Underground Railroad refugees who had fled slavery in Kentucky. Did you hear stories along those lines involving even your ancestors? Not so much from my ancestors, because um, it's sad to say, but because I've been here so long, my uh, my passion is more so to the telling the story of Josiah Henson. And I've I learned from his great, great granddaughter and she would always, we would always have buses that come in and they want to speak directly with her to 
hear firsthand what was slavery like for your grandfather and what was freedom like. But she would always uh, have to tell them, I'm sorry, but those stories didn't get passed down through our family. We, we were taught that we've arrived here, we're safe, we're free, don't ask questions, just keep your head down, work hard, and, and be the best that you can be. So a lot of those stories were lost over time, unfortunately. And, and, and I, that's one thing I do regret, especially with my family. Um, my mom's now got uh, short-term memory loss, so she doesn't remember a lot of the things from, from the past and can't pass those down. So if there's one message that uh, I always leave our, our students with when we do tours with them, it's to ask questions of your, mm-hmm. your, your mom and your dad and your grandparents and record that information. Because as you get older, you're really going to want to have a really good sense of self. And that, that's, there's no better way than hearing it directly from your family. Junetta, how did those stories make their way down in, in your family or in your circles or among your community members? Was, was there a concerted effort to, to help subsequent generations understand some of the challenges and, and some of the victories that were evident in these early communities? Uh, to, a, to a point, to a point. When it comes to, you know, what we actually went through while whilst in the Southern United States, uh, like you've heard, that wall of silence really did go up. Um, and, and that's a trauma response, right? That's what happens when something was just so impactful and painful that the only way that you're gonna push on and build something new is to compartmentalize and, and, and forget. Right. And when they say, no, we just got to leave that there. That's a whole mental compartmentalization that was then taking place. You know, uh, you hear the same in, in Holocaust survivors. Well, this was our Holocaust. And the word for it is the MAFA, M-A-A-F-A, which is the great disaster. Hmm. Right. That's the translation. And to relive the great disaster over and over and over again. That's just a form of, of, of self-torture, right? So to keep hope alive, to think in, in terms of creativity and building something new and using that part of your brain, you really do just have to leave that on the shelf. So for that reason, we didn't hear a lot of those enslavement stories. However, sometimes there is just physical evidence that told the story to you. And I know with my husband's great grandmother, his uh, girl cousins, you know, will share with us. She was up in her elderly years and they would go in and visit, you know, great grandmother Jackson and would be helped giving her like a sponge bath to only discover that her back was just covered in scars hmm. from, from a whipping, right? With a bull whip. Of course, they're not going to learn the conditions and the circumstance in which that uh, assault went down. But there it was. And one of the cousins referred to it just as this tree all across her back. So we had some very tangible reminders sometimes in our families. Shannon, I'm just watching your body language as as you hear Junetta speak. And I can deduce from that you've heard stories like this more than one time. Well, you know, I I guess when we were talking earlier, because like, you know, uh, you guys have already said about some of those stories, they didn't want to share them. And I guess when I was talking about 
generality about the people that when you read some of the narratives of them as opposed to what mine as well because they didn't want to talk about it either um you know but you do read um some of those um, in the journals and the diaries and those horrific experiences that they had encountered and then you know sometimes even and they will say no we don't want to do that we don't want to talk about it you can see in their faces sometimes when things would happen and it's almost like it's it's resonating um and they're taking something back but but I can't even fathom uh, what they had to endure to make it here. But uh, but like, uh, you know, Steve was saying, we need to share those stories now because when we go to ask our family or aunts, you know, um, and they're like, no, I don't want to talk about it. It's past, it's done. Um, but they're out, those stories are out there. It's just a matter of going to numerous repositories to, to uncover them. Um, and it's very disturbing at what at what you find sometimes uh, Junetta, we mentioned your involvement in in um black women united yeg uh yeg this advocacy collective that you know committed to the protection and advancement of black women and girls uh, how much does the history of these settlements in these communities factor in to your advocacy work today how, how, how relevant and important is an understanding of that history through the years the history absolutely informs this work. Uh, the history is this work, mm. I'll say, because I know the history here. I'm a product of the history here. What I also can tell you is that we are looping. We are looping in terms of the experiences and the outcomes that Black women and girls experience here in this province. You know, um, and for me to have lived long enough to see that, that some of the same conditions and experience that going back a hundred years could permanently alter the trajectory of a black woman's life are still encountered today. And perhaps not by my people, we have a, a, a lot of um, African immigration now, but it's happening to them. They might not know exactly what's happening to them and where it's coming from, but I do. And the women that I work with can analyze it. So the history has a very uh, living reality in the experiences of uh, just, you know, what, what, what you may encounter. And it's really our mission to begin to change that. You know, at some point in time, these cycles have to be broken. These systemic realities have to be broken. Why? Because we've lost too many. We've lost too much potential that guess what? our community actually needed. We needed them. So that's how it informs our work. So you've got an engaged audience of thousands of people that are going to hear this and people that aren't afraid to be change makers and difference makers and to impact their community and, and to understand that it starts in their own sphere and then it ripples out. So, so speaking to an entire audience, Junetta, where or how does that work begin present day? Well... We have a concentric circle model. So you said, you know, it starts, you know, close and then spreads out. And the concentric circle model that we work with is to really get the practices, uh, the theory and the practices. You must have both, right? We see a lot of people running around with just the theory and don't have the practice. 
um, that's kind of disastrous. But to really, whatever your ideology or whatever your cause is, you must marry the both. And if you want to actually approach change making in an authentic way, you have to pioneer and perfect those practices with even within the small circle that you work with, those within your immediate reach. You know, we hear that little cliche, you have to be the change. <laughs> well, you actually do, because what you don't want to do is just come to a, a group of people who are impacted by an issue, okay, which means there might be some trauma there, there might be um, some real vulnerabilities there, and just start bleeding all over those people. You know, because I'm still wounded. I still have some things that I've carried that have made me care about the issue. But guess what? I have not healed and transmuted into something more positive. We can all stay in a state of outrage, but it's that inner transformation, that healing process, really, that's then going to move you into being solution oriented. So that's part of the model that we work with, Ryan. And that's what I would, you know, have, have others think about as well. Stephen, what do you observe when you, you talk about students that come, not just students, but visitors that come through and, and visit Uncle Tom's Cabin historic site? And for many people, they're going to be hearing or learning more about these stories for, for potentially the first time. Uh, what sort of an impact do you see it having on people and, and people from different ethnic backgrounds with different family stories with regards to when or how they came to Canada, how long they've been here, what their present day looks like? What do you observe? Well, when, he, when even Junetta hits on a really important part of there's no excuse for for what's for turning a blind eye to what's happening today, and that's frustrating for us seeing that today. Um, just within the last six months, racism has. Uh, there's been a resurgence in it within our community here in Chatham-Kent. And locally, a young boy was told he needs to hang from a tree like an apple, like your ancestors did. This is what kids are saying to other kids in front of teachers. And the teachers aren't stepping in. And I just find that deplorable because there are diversity and inclusion coordinators, managers within the school boards that have the resources, they have the skill set, they have the knowledge to aid these teachers in confronting racism when they see it. And when they turn a blind eye to it, it really, it, it really upsets me. I know it upsets Shannon. I'm sure it upsets Jeanette mm -hmm. as well, because there's no excuse for it. Our ancestors worked too hard and strove day in and day mm -hmm. out Amen. to give our descendants the best opportunity they had. And they worked with the community. And, the, and for this to still be happening today, I just, it just frustrates me to no end. So we, we here at Uncle Tom's Cabin, we do a diversity symposium. I know teachers, some of them are, they know it's a sensitive topic and they're, they're leery of teaching it, but we provide those resources to them. We give them that training. They have to take it and apply it in the schools. So I just, that's, 
that's the response that I get when I when people come on our tours, whether it's in person or virtual. They didn't know this history, and there's no excuse for that. You know, these the our stories out in Alberta, here in Chatham Kent, Owen Sound, Niagara Falls. Those they're in the history books now. So study those, apply the the lessons that are learned in those studies. I want to take a look at our live chat here for a second. Kim says, I had no idea any of this information. She says, you know, we're awful when it comes to our isolation of information. Even when we want to know more, we don't. She says, I'm frustrated at us and I'm sad. Uh, Kaylin's watching from Vancouver. She says, I'm learning a lot here. She says, my Ukrainian side settled 150 kilometers from Amber Valley. And I never even knew that there was a black community there. What about this from Sharon? This is an interesting comment. She says, I find it so interesting, says Sharon, that when it comes to, you know, white communities and people saying they didn't know about these settlements, but us indigenous people always knew that they were here. We always knew about Amber Valley. We always knew about Wildwood. Jeanette, is there kind of like a I don't know really how to ask the question. Is there is there a synergy or is there a some sort of parallel experience or is there some sort of alignment with regards to the experience of black people in Canada, indigenous people in Canada, do you see the the story of reconciliation through a different lens as a descendant of people in these early black communities? I see it through a very different lens. Uh, there are parallel experiences when you just look at Turtle Island in its entirety. Um, and really, I, I, I've had the privilege of, you know, working with and presenting with and presenting, you know, to indigenous groups. And some of the discussions that we've had had identified that in the history of Turtle Islands, when Africans were forced to this continent, um, because we, we did come here in, in exploration, but I'm talking about the forced presence. Uh, we, we weren't enemies in the sense now history is complicated um and there were times that you know you look at the buffalo soldiers and you know what they were made to do what their assignment was but when not under duress we just simply didn't engage or interact with the same level of violence and disrespect um and just horridness that the indigenous nations encountered from, from white people, from like the white colonialists and, and settlers. So this, the history is just does not have the same enmity. And oh yeah, like I'm recognizing some people here. <laughs> um, hey, Junetta, let me ask you. So for people that are going to hear this on the podcast, they won't know yeah. that we're, we're, we're taking a look at some, some um, incredible and powerful historic photos. Um, Sam, if you wouldn't mind putting those back up, you say you're recognizing some people. Would, would you tell us a story or would you make an observation? Would you put some context to these photos as best you can? Yes. Um, if, if I'm, if this is the same picture that I'm, that I'm recognizing, I believe this is actually from my settlement. I believe this is actually a picture of, uh, look at what the tractors or farm machinery used to look like yeah, it's got to be a hundred years even old have this yeah picture in my in my personal family collections to tell you the truth i'll know i'll have to go dig but yeah it looks quite familiar amazing um 
you know, you talked, Stephen, I wanted to circle back on this and, and we want to talk about, obviously, when when we recognize and observe Black History Month, we want present day and future implications. We want to learn history, we want to apply those lessons to our lives present day and moving forward. And, and I know that this is um, a powerful image in the worst kind of a way. Um, you know, Stephen, you're talking about what's happening today. You, you, you use the word frustrated. You say you're frustrated and I appreciate that. I wonder if perhaps there's rage that boils below the surface. I don't know. But when we see these convoys and these demonstrations and these protests and you see the imagery of that Confederate flag uh, and what it represents, I'd, I'd like to ask each of you how you process that and, and what you wish Canadians would talk about when we see that imagery on Parliament Hill and elsewhere across the country. I saw that image in a window here in town. Hmm. about six months ago of a, a black woman and her white boyfriend. And I could not in my mind justify why that image was in that household. If you knew the, the, the history behind that flag. Um, and just for me personally here in town, I think people on the podcast might be surprised to know that the, the whole civil rights movement in Ontario began right here in Dresden with a man by the name of Hugh Burnett, who was a black man, went off and served his country in World War II. He came back here to Dresden, went to one of the shops in town, and they refused to give him a cup of coffee. And it's because of him and the work that he did by forming this organization called the National Unity Association that the, the freedoms that we have are enshrined in the Canadian Charter of Rights. I don't think people know that story and know the struggle that we, we went through to get to the point where we are today. Those were true freedoms that had to be fought for that weren't given to us. And to know that at that time, people here in Dresden, the businesses, 95% of them said, no, we don't want to have to to serve black people to know that was the the general consensus in town that is enraging and when you see that that racism still happening today that there's just no excuse for it and that's that is what really gets me upset and what really bothers me the most ryan is that i picture myself as a young black student in the high school or the public school today and somebody's saying you need to hang like an apple or chase you around the yard with the sticks whipping at your back saying, this is what your ancestors had to endure. I, I can't understand, I, it, it bothers me that we weren't taught that history and we didn't see ourselves in the history books back when we were in school in the 1980s and 1990s. So when we graduate and we learn about these stories of Hugh Burnett and we say, good Lord, we have so much to be proud about. And this history was hidden from us. That really upsets me. So I think that's, for me personally, that's what I want to rectify that. And that's why we reach out to the schools time and time and time again to give them these tools so that they can teach another, any, all students growing up what the nation building looked like in reality. It was all of us working together. Hmm. 
nation building. Uh, Shannon, I can tell that what he's saying is resonating with you. Uh, oh, Lord, yes. <laughs> yes. Everything that he has said, it's just 100 percent true. Um, my grandparents are part of that organization as well. And talking about the going into in uniform, my uncle, the same thing in his uniform. Uh, you know, here I can fight for the country, but be damned. Oh, sorry. Be darned. No, if, you can uh, say it, Shannon. You can say whatever okay, you want. Okay, be damned yeah. if I'm going to give you a cup of coffee. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it was it was sad. It was really, and like Stephen said, you know, what they, the you know, we're standing on the shoulders of giants and greatness, and people don't understand the fact that they, because they have not experienced that. They have not had that door shut in your face. They have not gone to, you know, taken a, your child to a restaurant and have some high school students sit beside you and say, I'm not sitting beside them to ends, you know, mm. um, and it's like, okay, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah, and then, and then, <laughs> now see, now you're getting me upset. <laughs> <laughs> That's not my goal. That's not what I endeavor to do. But we we Don't try to let me go off on you now. Yeah. Well, Shannon, let me tell you, we try to approach every show and every morning from a place of passion. And sometimes that that comes from positivity and sometimes that's rooted in fury. And, and there's nothing wrong with that because I think both can have an impact. Um, it is. And we there's a lot of education to be done. And you, you think that we've come so far with that, with educating, and then you step back. And, it, it you know, and I think with the murder of George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter matters, that really opened up people's eyes. But it took that long for them to understand. It's like, wow, this is not right. So, you know, but... Now it's just gone from one extreme to the other. And now we're reverting back. So like Stephen said, you know, Janita, we've got a lot of work yet to be done. I'm, you know, when we talk about that, and I'm glad that you brought up uh, George Floyd and, and I mean, our, our live chat is, is there's been an ongoing conversation here as we're talking and, and people are processing their own stories and Ahmaud Arbery and, 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 mm-hmm. and, and people yeah. are, you know, people are talking about Viola Desmond on the Canadian ten dollar bill and the story there, and there there have been yeah. high points and low points, and obviously the Black Lives Matter demonstrations last year, hundreds of thousands, millions of people uh, in North America and elsewhere around the world gathering in solidarity and demanding better and insisting that Black Lives Matter. People uh, across different spectrums of uh, of socioeconomic status, ethnic background, and and otherwise, um, Junetta did it have a lasting impact uh, i mean to be honest with you I, I remember being down at the alberta legislature grounds there's about 13 14 000 people down there they estimated chanting black lives matter hearing unbelievably powerful addresses from people hearing people share personal stories and, and looking around and feeling uh in, in 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 a very emotionally charged sense a real community and then i think of an image you know i see a big pickup truck uh, making its way downtown ottawa with the canadian flag and a confederate flag flying and i and i have to wonder what country this is uh where somebody like that can can literally fly a symbol of slavery parallel to the canadian flag to the maple leaf and get away with it quite frankly and i I try not to become discouraged i try to channel how that makes me feel into conversations like this but how do you process that well that was a moment in time you know, and yes, everyone was at the height of their emotions, right? Uh, it was an emotional outpouring, and it was a venue, the you know, the rally that you referenced, you know, for which people could then express those emotions. But the moment passed, 
the moment passed. And what we've seen on the societal level is in fact the pendulum then began to swing quickly in the other direction. And I actually knew that was gonna happen. You know, I've studied this, uh, I've studied this and I know that backlash, you just have to start setting your clock for it. There's a countdown clock to backlash. Hmm. So no, I did not see any kind of real change. Um, it was emotional, but it did not translate in my experience, okay, as a black woman living here, it did not translate into uh, any like, you know, systemic change, a societal change, attitudinal shift. This is a really great comment. I appreciate this from Maria, the insight. She says, not only are people flying the Confederate flag alongside the Canadian flag, but they're also conflating it with freedom, uh, which is particularly offensive. Um, I want to ask, and, and we don't wrap up every roundtable like this, but this one, I think there will be particular value um, for each of the three of you to leave us uh, with something to walk with, something to consider. Uh, it, it, it could be good advice you received. It could be a small story. It could be a challenge. But I want you to give us something to walk with, not just through the remaining 17 days of Black History Month, but moving forward uh, in perpetuity. Um, Shannon, I'll put you on the spot first. <laughs> What's oh, something that you'd like us to walk with? <laughs> oh, dear. Oh, there's so many things. You know, I think, you know, start with what is in your backyard, you know, wherever you live. Seek out that history um, because there's so much rich, rich history. Because I tell people, you know, because they're always saying, so where do I begin? So here in our area, Go to the museums, go to those resources, the repositories, because they have, you know, we have so many, we have a plethora of, of information, uh, you know, start there and reach out. We, you need to really understand um, our history because this is not just, you know, black history, my history. This is our Canadian history. You need to know the whole story. Um, so if it's one thing you do this month, you need to really um, do some some reading yourself. Uh, you know, challenge your students, challenge yourself um, to read one book. You know, like in a, in in schools, for instance. You know, like they will read Shakespeare. So maybe you know, read some books by um, you know, uh, or poems by Toni Morrison, or you know, like you know, learn about the people that have shaped Canadian history. Like the story of Viola, you know, there's so many rich things that are out there. When you're talking about scientists, you know, does it have to be a white scientist? You know, like really explore who we are and in and your roots. But I think they really need to dig deep to understand where we have all come from and who has helped shape in this great Canadian mosaic that we all live in. But we need to understand our history. Hmm. So well said. Stephen? I would say put yourself in an uncomfortable situation. Put yourself outside of your comfort zone, whether it means reading a book like Shannon's suggesting or visiting a site of another ethnicity that you don't know a thing about. You have your perceptions of what that culture is like, but you really don't know. So, so put yourself in an uncomfortable situation. Meet somebody of another race. 
That's the thing. People think that they, they know the black culture because of what they see on the news. But do you know your neighbor? Do you know that black person in town? Do you know their story? I guarantee you, if it's a black person and you go up to them and introduce yourself and want to have a conversation, you'll be met with open arms because we are welcoming people and we're, we want to tell our story and share it with you. So don't be, just put yourself outside of your comfort zone would be my recommendation. It's wise words. Junetta, to you. So I guess my message is to any Black people, African-descended people who are listening to this, uh, listening to this episode. And my, my cultural community here is in the last stages of assimilation. And the post-mortem analysis on that tells me that was maybe not the wisest choice when presented with an array of options of how to survive within a white supremacist overculture. I do not advise it. So to any other brothers and sisters who are hearing me today, my advice I'm actually gonna take from an indigenous elders, Mr. Stan Daniels, who advised his granddaughter, infiltrate, don't assimilate. What that means is you can take your place in society, you have a place in society, but do not turn your back on your own cultural roots. Do not begin to think and internalize in some assimilation, which the definition of is adopting the culture of the dominant group with the belief it is better. It's not better, you're not worse. And that's not the approach you want to take. You have to keep your own cultural gold Amen. because that's exactly what it is. Yeah. Take your place, but don't leave yourself behind. Hmm. Amen. Amen. That's what I would say. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Uh, that's Junetta Jamerson. Uh, you can read more about what she's doing with Black Women United Yeg at BWUnited. Ca. Uh, it's been a pleasure having Shannon Prince join us. You can check out BuxtonMuseum.com and Stephen Cook. Uh, you can check out UncleTom'sCabin.org. Um, as Gord Downey said about the Rio statics when the Tragically Hip were on tour many years ago, we are richer having heard from you today. Thank you for this. Thank Our you. Pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Real talkers, we'd love to know how you process what you've just heard. I'm so grateful for that conversation. You know you can be in touch with us anytime to talk at ryanjesperson.com. It just popped into the live chat here on YouTube, and all I see is a bunch of hands clapping and a bunch of hearts. And so I think that this message has resonated. Kathy just says, yes, Junetta. Scott says for Black History Month, he's going to watch Black Klansman. That was a powerful movie. Wow. Others of you are sharing books that you've read. Alicia says a love letter to Africaville. Is it one that she says she'd recommend? Same with policing black lives. Another book. I've not read it. I appreciate that. Deborah says attend the churches. Lilith's brood. Maria says she's reading through Uh, home going in the fifth season on her to read list. Interesting. I'm not familiar with it, but I appreciate these suggestions. Thanks for everybody. And, 
your contributions to our editorial process. If there's something, an interview you'd like to hear on the show, if there's somebody you'd like to see featured on Real Talk, we want to hear from you. And that's something that means a lot to us is your participation in our editorial process. I want to remind you about this conference. It's fast approaching. A little later on this month, it goes February 22nd through the 24th. It's the 13th annual Growing the North Conference. Your opportunity to explore, innovate, and grow at the annual conference where municipal leaders, entrepreneurs have opportunities to explore economic development opportunities and innovation in Northwest Alberta. You can expect keynote presentations, breakout sessions, networking opportunities, including tourism, innovation, and leadership. They've lined up Joe Jackman of Jackman Reinvents, the world's foremost reinvention company. How cool is that? And Daniel Flemix from Strategy Research and Communications Travel Alberta. Learn more about how innovation is factoring into tourism. That's just one example. You can learn more at growingthenorth.com. That's also where you can get your tickets. A reminder, it kicks off. It's three half days back to back to back starting on February 22nd. We talked about supply chain earlier this show. I was talking to Mike from Eden Landscaping about a month ago now, I guess. I've been telling you about our conversation. He says the number one thing this time of year real talkers need to remember when dealing with Eden Landscaping or any landscaping company for that matter is that it can take a while to get these construction materials in. The supply chain is impacting everything. That's why Mike wants to get your design done up based on your dream. He wants to bring your outdoor space to life. But they got to get the ball rolling now. If you want to have that space usable by June, July, August, those cherished summer months, you can learn more about what they do. Take a look at their portfolio. They do so much work. I mean, excavation, retaining walls, outdoor kitchens, stonework, water features, you name it, at landscapeedmonton.ca. And our friends at Dram in a Can want to remind you that you can get your hands on 100 mils of beautifully blended Irish whiskey. It's the Two Stacks Irish whiskey, a beautiful blend, conveniently in a can for the whiskey lover on the go. It's perfect in your tackle box. It's great in your backpack after you've earned those Ks. You're sitting down, the boots are off, you're massaging your feet, and you get into a dram in a can. If you've been there, you know what I'm talking about. You can find it at Sherbrooke Liquor. Uh, you can buy them in cans of one or packs of four. And don't forget it, Sherbrooke Liquor, their new location in Otwell. It's their second in Edmonton. Literally, Thousands of brands of craft beer. Sam Brooks' eyes just widened like dinner plates. That's Sherbrooke, that one Sherbrooke. We're not going to give away your address, Sam, but you that's like virtually... No, but, but walking distance to Sherbrooke was... A small factor in why I bought my house. <laughs> yeah. Small factor. And it actually probably has a pretty good d- impact on resale value as well. I think We're so. Oh, yeah. distance to Sherbrooke Absolutely. where you can pick up your dram in a can. You can check them out online at SherbrookeLiquor.com. Sarah Hoyles uh, hanging out from her home studio. We're calling it the editorial producer of this show. Amazing roundtable. I'm so grateful that you lined that up. We're also keeping an eye on stories as they develop. We mentioned Ontario's premier Doug Ford addressed the country in particular, addressed his province of Ontario as as, as we were on the show today. And and people are paying attention uh, to what that's going to mean in particular, I think, uh, of particular concern to the premier there. Probably, yeah, the Ottawa occupation for sure. It's not Toronto, so it's maybe not completely on his radar, but that bridge and the half a billion dollars of trade interrupted every single day with that blockade, that's got to be prompting his comments. State of emergency is what has been declared in Ontario uh, as an effort to end the truck convoy blockades. So 
yet they, uh, it's now a state of emergency that was just announced today. One of the things that is particularly interesting about invoking that or, or, or declaring a state of emergency is it gives different powers uh, to levels of government, to law enforcement and the like. So it'll be interesting to see how that manifests itself. I think it's probably safe to say that there are millions of Canadians that are expecting these blockades to end one way or another at some point in the next few days. People are losing patience. Yeah, I mean, I was thinking about Occupy Wall Street. Remember that? You know, mm. there was they were occupiers there, and they they stuck it out for some time, but it ultimately dissipated um, in a nonviolent way. I, I don't know when we're having jerry cans and um, it's, you know, like open threats around violence from these folks. Uh, I don't know that it's going to end without violence. Yeah. I, I'm not. I'm not encouraging it. I'm not. Um, wanting that but uh just with the vitriol that's coming from these folks in the convoy is uh it's con- beyond concerning. I was going to say concerning, but that doesn't even come close to capturing. Yeah, I know. It was like, it's like when we were just talking to Stephen in the round table and he goes, it's frustrating. He was talking about things that are frustrating. And I'm going, well, that's one way to put it. Uh, infuriating is probably not, you don't put words in somebody else's mouth. But uh, I, I know that right now and people are going, well, what are these politicians supposed to do? And I think it's probably fair to say that some people will acknowledge uh, people driven by common sense will acknowledge that there are some political inconveniences uh, for some leaders here, including Premier Ford, including Premier Kenny and Premier Mo, and for that matter, conservative leadership at the federal level. But Canadians have had enough. And at what point does the political opportunism turn into political liability? It's a fine and dangerous line to walk. Uh, what's going on with this figure skating story? A lot of people are going, hey, is Canada ultimately going to win a bronze medal in, in team skating or not? What, what's happening here? Well, it's a Russian figure skater, and she was found doping. Um, the Russians basically found this out in December, but said, you know what, it was, uh, it was I love this, it was a misunderstanding is what the Russians have said. Okay. Um, so they said, you know what, she can still go to the Olympics. So as of today, now that they ha- the Olympic Committee has found out about the doping, um, they are trying to actually get her banned from competing. So this so that is that might mean that might mean that the Canadian that was in fourth place yeah. um will get bumped up to third. Okay. And then also this figure skater uh Camila Velieva, right? Yeah. Velieva, there we go. Thank you, Ryan. Um she might she's supposed to compete later, like next week, and that might just not happen 15 years old right and uh, described as a prodigy our house is a figure skating house carrie my wife was a competitive figure skater for many years and she was saying to me before the story surfaced about this this banned heart drug what is it uh, trimetazine or something like that uh detected in a urine sample like you said by russian authorities back on christmas day um the big deal about valieva was that she's 15 years old and she's landing quads in competition which is a huge deal I said to Carrie, I said to, yeah, I said to Carrie, how big of a deal is this? And she just kind of turns and looks at me like, <laughs> that's a big deal, you know, and she landed a couple of them. So uh, it'd be interesting to see what happens here. I'm not I'm not I'm, I'm not. Uh, and I promise, uh, Sam, Sarah, I promise I won't take us back into the steroid Olympics chat, although I know that. It Why would, not? Well, <laughs> I mean, it would bump our downloads up because everybody wants to talk about the steroid Olympics. Um, but I, some people will get angry and say, are you suggesting that 15 year old girls should be taking anabolic steroids? Well, I mean, not totally. Uh, but I will say this, that when it comes to doping or when it comes to stories of these these 
let's say, alleged drug offenses uh, in the Olympic Games, there are different levels. Can we acknowledge that? I mean, like some athletes will get busted because, you know, they should know better. And everybody says Olympic athletes always know what they're putting in their body. But sometimes you say, well, this may have been something that came along with with Sudafed. You know, an athlete was having it was was having some sort of allergy attack and took Sudafed and this showed up. You know, there's Ross Regliati that <laughs> remember the cannabis detected in his system back when he won in Nagano in 98. I think it was Ross when the it's hard to think how long ago that was. Gosh, remember the gold medal and everybody thought, well, is cannabis a performance enhancing drug or not? And, and, and ultimately, he said he must have breathed in some secondhand smoke at a goodbye party in Whistler before he went to the Olympics. You look at Ross now and Ross's gold and his whole cannabis company. I'm not sure it was secondhand smoke, but I digress. I'm not sure that pot helps you achieve excellence in snowboarding or not. And then you've got Sarah, like the full blown doping, the like Ben Johnson eyes bugging out of his head, massive, you know, the, the, the era of the, just the massive burly sprinters and the, the shot putters and the, and that sort of a thing. And there, there are, when I when I look at this and you feel for this 15 year old in the way, I don't know all the facts. I don't know the full story, but you wonder, was it like doping or was it just a mistake? Was it was it a medication she was prescribed or took inadvertently? She didn't know about. You know what I'm saying? I, I take a look at these stories on a case by case basis and I'm not a doctor, but you sort of try to analyze them case by case. Well, she is actually one of the youngest Olympians to ever test positive. So she is very young. I also think of like who is in her circle of influence. So if she's being told that she needs to compete and she needs to compete at a high level and she needs to bring it home for Russia, I mean, Vladimir Putin takes a lot of pride in the Olympics and Russian athletes have been known to use substances. So I like, to me, I'm kind of like, did she even have a choice to take it? I don't, I don't know. Yeah. Um, I think that there's a lot of a lot of things at play that we don't we don't know yet. And we will hopefully find out more. Yeah, no kidding. And that's well said. Kim PG signed. She says, Ben Johnson just broke my heart. I remember I literally remember where I was when we heard about Ben Johnson. I was sitting around the kitchen table in my buddy Jeff Jansen's house and his mom, Dina Jansen, answered the phone on the wall. Remember, we used to have phones on the walls with cords attached to them, kids? Really long cords. Really long cords. You and like, go from th- like through three rooms with one phone. I would always admire the families that cords, the cords weren't like twisted and bent and busted <gasps> up. There was always like that one family where the cord just hung neatly and perfectly. I was always the one that got all twisted up and tied and I talk with my hands and I'd be jammed in. But I remember I remember hearing about Ben Johnson and that he'd been busted for steroids. And it was it was like a punch to the gut. Right. And then just a couple of years later, the the double whammy, the Magic Johnson, the HIV story. And just these were like childhood heroes and just being so devastated for Magic Johnson, who, by the way, has gone on to live like you'd, you'd never know what a what a remarkable story that was. I digress. I'm getting way off track here. But there are those moments in sport or pop culture or otherwise where you just remember where you were at. Curtis chiming in says Carl Lewis cheated, too. <laughs> totally. That's the whole point of the steroid games is you just go, well, everyone's just going to cheat. So open her up, (laughs) do whatever you like. Mike goes, how do they even still allow Russia to participate in the Olympics? Well, they're not now, right? It's the ROC, the Russian Olympic. It's still Russia. What a joke. I don't know. Does that punishment even actually mean anything? I guess what? They don't don't get their flag. They don't get their anthem when they win. Yeah. Right. That's it. But it's nobody cares about that. They don't care about that. They're still at the Olympics. Do they care? I don't know if they care. Maybe Hoyles, you can get a Russian athlete on the show. Maybe you can let us know if they care or not. 
then they'll magically. Well, they'll have to be. They'll have to be ones that you know aren't going uh, back to Russia. Russia. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah, I know. I don't know why I'm laughing. That's actually horrible. Uh, Okay. Jillian, by the way, says, speaking about black Canadians versus black Americans, nothing divided us more than Ben Johnson versus Carl Lewis. Maybe Donovan Bailey versus Michael Johnson. That was kind of that. There was that rivalry, too. And Michael, he pulls his hamstring halfway through as Donovan Bailey's just wiping the floor with him in the 150. Remember that, everybody? Boy, was that ever cool. Sharon's remembering Nadia Kamenichi, the perfect 10 in gymnastics. Gosh, we could go all day on this. Yeah, Debbie says, I don't know, what's the difference between Russian athletes competing under the Russian flag or is the Russian, I don't know, ROC, who knows? Brenda says, Russia's Russia, no matter what it's called. <sighs> I was about to make a Ukraine comment, but I don't want it to come across as glib. It's fucking horrible what's going on there right now. And of course, that's a story we're keeping an eye on. You look at the troops that Russia's amassing on that border. It's estimated it could cause or it could prompt or it could facilitate. What's the word? Up to 8 million refugees in the next while out of Ukraine. It's a story that we're keeping an eye on, to be sure. Alicia says, great minds. She was referencing the same story as me, that 150-meter dash. You think Donovan Bailey, What a that guy's just a champ. Have you ever met him in person? Guy's like... Me, no. He's, no. he's, he's like, he walks into... I had a chance to interview him a couple times. He walks into a room, and he's just like... He, he's one of those guys that just... One of those people that just brings energy into a room. You know what I mean? Like, just positive energy energy and you're looking and you shake you sh- i remember when i was shaking his hand i'm like this guy was the fastest man on planet earth how cool is that it's like what are these people like when you're like serena williams or your connor mcdavid or your donovan bailey and you're laying in bed at night and you're like i am literally the best on planet earth with what i do amazing stuff you know what they probably don't do is crush blizzards on a daily basis but the rest of us can And if you're in the mood to crush a blizzard today, may I recommend that you get it from the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton in Sherwood Park. They've got amazing Valentine's specials going right now. They've got like the Valentine's themed blizzards. I've seen them all. You can make your own or, of course, go with the house recommendation. And then, of course, they've got those Dairy Queen cakes. If you've left your Valentine's planning to the last minute, why not leave it to the folks that have been doing it best for years those are the teams at the Dairy Queens of Palisades, Nemeo, Newcastle, Westmount, and Baseline Road in Sherwood Park. You make sure you let them know that Jespo sent you. I was keeping an eye on uh, Kubi Energy's page at kubienergy.ca. One of you, one of the first comments this morning on our live chat, right when we went live at 8.30 Mountain Time, I saw you say, I saw a Kubi truck and trailer on the road today. You'll see them all over the place. They've got their Tesla certified teams doing installations across Western Canada. It's because they got two offices based out of Edmonton and Kamloops, BC. And it also means that they're hiring right now. If you're a journeyman electrician, if you're an apprentice, or heck, if you've just thought about a career in the innovative industry that is solar and sustainable energy, Kubi would love to hear from you. You can learn more about their spring hiring blitz right now at kubienergy.ca. I also want to give a shout to our friends at Grand Dog Essentials. I've been telling you about this tray that they've got. they got these new trays. You go to shop now at granddog.ca. You can see the beef dog food, the chicken dog food, those supplements I've been telling you about. Our boxer Moses gets a supplement every day for his joint and mobility issues, and I see it working. But these mine pet platters are what have changed the game for us 
If you want to have your dog unleash an instinctive eating behavior, you want to see about the natural feeding territory, you can learn more about these pet platters and how they work on the website and then have it delivered to your door. Remember, they deliver Edmonton, Calgary and Central Alberta on a weekly basis and the promo code REALTALK gets you 10% off your first time order at granddog.ca. I talked to Chris Labossier yesterday. You know him and his team at Local Waste. They've been keeping it local for more than a quarter century, still family-owned. And I'm saying to Chris, can I make the announcement about how the company's growing? And he goes, ah, well, let's, let's wait for the official news release. Uh, they're continuing to expand their footprint, offering construction, commercial, and residential waste and recycling collection across the prairies. You can request a quote in Alberta or Saskatchewan today by visiting localwaste.com. .ca. You know, another way that Local Waste delivers every Friday right here on the show, they give us an opportunity to blow off a little steam, to, to say what's on our mind, to express it in a way that catches folks' attention with the volume turned up to 10. It's a tradition we call Trash Talk! Yeah, this is from Scott, who says to all the people on LinkedIn, can you please stop using this platform like Facebook? Why are you posting things that do not involve finding a job or talking about education to find a new career path or even trying to find a new mentor? Go and post your nonsense ideological leanings on Facebook. Before you like or repost something on LinkedIn, please ask yourself, is this the kind of crap I should be taking to some other social network to signal to my friends that I'm either very intelligent or otherwise? Or is this job related? And for that matter, to the engineers of LinkedIn, please ban all posts by politicians none of what they're posting is relevant it's not helping me looking for a job public service announcement over sincerely yours scott there you go scotty what about this one from wife of a teacher who writes in says i'm so sad teachers are being picked on and bullied by alberta's premier and education minister they haven't even set foot in a classroom through this pandemic they're just out looking for a fight these two keep bullying poking vilifying and lying stoking that anger it's like they want Want teachers to walk out so they can vilify them and the Alberta Teachers Association even more. Teachers are not okay. They're worn thin. They're tired. They're depressed and they don't deserve this fight from these bullies. I hope Albertans see through this. These folks know these bullies are going about it all wrong, attacking the good people. How many times have you heard or have you thought, thank God for my kids' teachers? I bet a couple of thousand times more than you've said, thank God for the UCP. Signed, wife of a teacher. What about this one from Jimmy who says great show finally some Canadian content that's informative and extensive says well that's what I thought until I tuned into your February 4th show Ryan your change of tone from your kind thoughtful inquisitive discussion with folks talking about eating disorders to your ranting and lack of empathy toward the blockade at the borders at Coots and Ottawa downtown how can you hate us if you do not know us should not public figures like yourself strive to lessen the gap between groups and promote understanding and empathy toward others just wondering while I'm at work waiting for a truck to show up that from Jimmy point registered Jimmy thank you very much this one from Johnny who says Jespo and earmuffs kids big time earmuffs kids I'm sick and fucking tired of people thinking their political party of choice is somehow morally or ethically superior to other parties how often times have we heard my party cares about healthcare yours doesn't my party cares about the economy yours doesn't my party cares about the environment and jobs and education and freedom and yours doesn't if you've ever thought these things about your chosen political party you've been duped don't feel bad though we've all bitten off a little bit of that at some point you have to remember they are masters at getting us to believe this shit granted some individuals 
individual politicians may have deep and legitimate convictions about these issues, but don't kid yourselves. Political parties care about two things and only two things. Number one, getting fucking elected. And number two, staying fucking elected. Johnny says, dutifully planting your flag at one end of the spectrum for one political party is destroying our ability to see past the bullshit. They're all shoveling down our throats every single day. No more for me. My vote is up for grabs every election, and it's about time politicians started earning it. That from Johnny. This one from Deanna, who says my premier's a bully. He's not a leader or collaborator. He rules with an iron fist, creating fear and division. Doesn't care about the greater good, just himself, no one and nothing else. Me, me, me. A liar who lies so easily, his only tell is his smirk. Deanna says I've lived in Alberta for 40 years, and I've never felt afraid for my future until now. This because of my premier. The gaslighting, the deflecting, unleashing the alt-right, and the silent MLAs are just as responsible as anybody else for this chaos. I may not be the smartest person in the room, but I know right from wrong, and I stand up to bullies. That from Deanna, and this one to wrap us up from West Juice. Buckle up. When I was growing up, we were told that being a good citizen, being a good Canadian, was all about looking after each other. Canadians were nice. We'd put Canadian flags on our backpacks when we traveled because we didn't want to be mistaken for Americans. If you wanted to have a voice in your government, you'd run for office, and at the very least, you'd vote and have your say, and that's how it works. Now these folks show up, some of them with their kids in tow. And I see on the internet they're using kids like human shields at the Windsor border crossing. Are you serious? What kind of a culture is this? There are some strong ISIS vibes going on over there. By the sounds of it, they don't even know how government works. Why didn't somebody teach them the basics? Where were they radicalized? And why don't their pastors and priests do something about these barbaric practices? I mean, don't get me wrong, says West Juice. Everybody's got a right to peacefully protest, but now people are losing their jobs and lives because of the actions of these backward goons in this country that's not how you do it go get a job like the rest of us you lazy assholes and fit in or fuck off West Juice then wonders, does this sound familiar? If you're a person of color or a Muslim like I am, this is the shit that I've been hearing about people like me and immigrants like my parents for more than 40 years. My parents came here, worked their asses off, built a life for us and thrived. And because they didn't have the opportunities that you did back in their quote shithole countries, they love Canada. They told me the life won't be fair, but you can pull your bootstraps up. You can achieve anything here. Complaining, a sign of weakness. Now I see a bunch of weak, cowardly, ugly Canadians parading around like they own the place, being treated with kid gloves by the authorities must be nice to be able to erode the rule of law without consequences. For the record, I will forever use this as an irrefutable example of white privilege in this country. It's just too obvious. My parents didn't want to leave their lives behind in the old country, but they had to because people like you turned their country into a shithole. Now I'm seeing it happen to the Alberta and Canada that I love. Fuck these people and the trucks they rode in on. I'll also add the caveat that these aren't actually real truckers, just like Islamic terrorists aren't real Muslims. The vast majority of truckers, just like the vast majority of Muslims, are like everybody else, trying to put food on the table and raise their kids so they might have a better life than maybe they could get off on a little vacation every once in a while. Sad these dumbasses are ruining for the real truckers, but hey, now you know how this Muslim feels. Imbeciles used to say that immigrants would ruin our country. I guess the joke's on them. It's old stock Canadian. That from West Juice, but I ain't throwing it because this is going in the hopper for email of the month. You can send your trash talk in to talk at ryanjesperson.com. Coming up on Monday's show, it's Valentine's Day, and we're going to talk about 
intimacy droughts. What's that all about? Plus, a student organizer of a walkout protest will join us before they, you know, walk out. In the meantime, like, subscribe, share our content. Have a great weekend, and we'll talk to you soon. Real Talk is hosted by Ryan Jesperson. Editorial producer, Sarah Hoyles. Technical producer, Sam Brooks. Managing director, Josh Dunford. Account coordinator, Tanya Franklin. Merchandise operations, Katie Cook-Chivers. Website design, Mike Johnston. Voiceover by me, Carrie Skelton. Real Talk's editorial board is Sapria Duvetti, Ahmed Ali, Ann Castleman, Corey Hogan, Julie Rohr, Harmon Candola, Catherine O'Neill, and Chris Henderson. Real Talk is recorded in Edmonton, Alberta on Treaty 6 territory, the traditional and ancestral territory of the Cree, Dene, Blackfoot, Salto, and Nakota Sioux, home to Métis settlements and the Métis Nation of Alberta. Real Talk is the flagship property of Relay Communications Group Incorporated. All rights reserved. For more, check out ryanjesperson.com.